This is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Well, the message is clear, and we've heard it over the last few days, last couple of weeks. Cut the red tape. BC needs to work to build more homes faster in some select communities. And, oh, yeah, those communities are on a list. They're on notice. Here's some of what we've heard in the last little bit when it comes to the Housing Supply Act. Hitting the target. We have the risk of losing young people to other provinces, and that's just as, as unacceptable to me. After months of anticipation, the B.C. government has released its list of municipalities where more housing is needed. On the Lower Mainland, the list includes Vancouver, Port Moody, Delta, the districts of North and West Vancouver, and Abbotsford. In seven months, we may find uh, communities that are on a naughty list, but right now what we have is 10 communities that uh, we know uh, need to put a little bit more focus on building housing, and uh, we're going to support them in that effort. The province will now work directly over the next two weeks with these municipalities to establish housing targets. Vancouver has long had housing problems with challenges around permitting and resistance to density. I want to be very clear, if something makes sense for the city over the next 30 years, we are going to do it. Also on the list, three communities on the windy South Island, including Saanich, Victoria and Oak Bay. Oak Bay's been resistant to density in the past, but Saanich's mayor says the only way this works is if every community contributes. I think it's great to see that uh, the three of us, uh, Oak Bay, Victoria and Saanich, are all on this list uh, with the province. I think it gives us that strategic opportunity to make sure we're moving forward in a coordinated fashion. Okay, that from Richard Zussman and Global News. Let's unpack some of this and bring in Tom Davidoff, Director of UBC Centre for Urban Economic and Real Estate. Urban Economics and Real Estate. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, when we start talking about homes, what we're really talking about, isn't it, is um, is this densification and building up, not out. That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, the listed municipalities primarily are places that are in the midst of very expensive metro areas, have very expensive homes, and uh, are largely single-family detached and don't offer a lot of opportunities for housing for people with middle, upper middle, lower middle, lower incomes. Well, let's look at some of the municipalities. Uh, we've got Abbotsford, Delta, uh, City of Kamloops, North Vancouver, Oak Bay, Port Moody, Saanich, City of Vancouver, of course, City of Victoria, and the District of West Vancouver. Now, some of those I can understand is certainly when it comes to densification. Some of them I have to question, and my question comes down to this. When you talk about putting more people into areas like Abbotsford, you still have to get those people to their jobs, their professional jobs, uh, white-collar jobs, uh, well, even jobs in industry. And that involves public transit or something else, things that really don't exist. City of Abbotsford, take them, for example, because, well, even if there wasn't a transit strike, which there is ongoing right now, the services really aren't there. So what do you do to rectify that? Is that lost in uh, in the conversation? Well, I'd make two points. The first is uh, transit really is, of course, a critical part of housing. You know, uh, as the city grows, people sitting in traffic driving for hours is just, you know, not not going to be a great solution. Expanding mass transit, encouraging people to do active transit when possible. Uh, houses, relative homes from your jobs are great. 
However, I think when we're talking about the naughty list and, and who needs to add housing, we have a really good signal uh, of where housing is needed. And that signal is price, right? If, if homes are expensive, that means people want to live someplace. And when you've got high prices, you ought to have high density, right? Capital wants to go where capital is most valuable, which means you should have the tallest, densest buildings in the most expensive real estate. So if you see a community that has some combination of very sprawling, low-density housing and high prices, you don't need to know much else to know that that's the community that isn't doing a good enough job adding density. So this is going to be a chicken and egg type question, but where do we start? Do we start with uh, developers recognizing that there has to be a different approach or do we have to change the way that we look at how we are going to live as people in B.C.? Well, developers will just respond to prices and regulations, right? We can think about developers as profit maximization machines. That's what they do. That's what they're about. You know, for better or worse, that's pretty much how we think about developers. They're going to go where the reward to building is high uh, and where they're, of course, legally permitted to build or able to uh, get regulations relaxed, you know, through some process. Uh, Governments, uh, if we want to have more affordability, need to make sure developers are building enough uh, so that owners of property are competing with each other uh, and we get more affordability. And I I think that's what the act uh, is about. Affordability is certainly a key thing when it comes to families. But still, I don't know where you even look when it comes to affordability. If you want to have a family, what do you do if you have just an average job? You can't afford a uh, mortgage, let alone rent. And uh, then when it comes to even planning for schools, take an area like Surrey, high growth area. Eastern parts of Surrey don't have adequate, um, even with the new schools, adequate numbers of, uh, of or size of uh, buildings. So they have to go to portables. Are we missing something here when it comes to how people will live in our province? Yeah, I think you raised some important points. First of all, affordability is really compromised. You know, you can talk to lawyers and doctors, and they can't find a place that they feel comfortable affording. And that's really the very high end of the income distribution. Most people who haven't inherited wealth uh, and just work, you know, good but not spectacularly compensated jobs, it is a real struggle. You're talking about very unpleasant commutes, uh, or you're talking about housing that's, you know, too small for their needs. And so we need more homes so that there are more choices for people. Uh, And we can do a bit better. But, you know, the trend is not great for affordability because Canada, in my opinion, rightly, is letting in many, many immigrants every year, which is a good thing. It it means people who live in really difficult circumstances can have the wonderful opportunity of living and working in Canada. But as that population growth occurs, you know, even if we build a lot, we're likely to just sort of be treading water. If we don't build, it's an affordability catastrophe. So we need to build. But there's going to be more population if we're going to get any more affordability. And you're right. Uh, Places like Syria are really struggling with uh, insufficient school facilities. You know, even in Vancouver, uh, you know, in in some cases there's crowding and, um, you know, annexes or temporary facilities and all of that as we uh, retrofit. So we have to plan. uh, And, of course, lots of people can't find a school in their neighborhood. So, yeah, we, we do need better educational facilities. So is this Housing Supply Act the solution that's going to change everything? 
it's an important solution. Uh, my guess is it's going to help us make things less affordable more slowly. I don't believe that anything that any politician has put on the table or that there's going to be broad support for is going to put us in a place where that family you mentioned that, you know, works really hard, but, you know, is sort of in the middle of the income distribution, that they're going to be able to afford a nice detached home with an easy commute. I think those days, unfortunately, are behind us. So the question is, what's the best we can do so that people don't have to struggle unduly? And getting enough homes built is just a huge part of it. The reason rents have grown so fast is there's too many people looking for not enough homes. And in the meantime, we've got places like the District of West Vancouver, the District of North Vancouver, uh, Saanich, Oak Bay. You know, these are places with estate-style zoning practically, you know, large lot, single family that's 90% of the population can't afford. And it is absolutely correct for the province to step in and say, your land use regulations, yes, it's important that you preserve local amenity and green space, but you can't zone out most of the population if we're going to consider housing affordability as something that's important. And Mike is off. Bruce Claggett is in for him. That's me. Reaction and fallout to those 47 municipalities on the housing naughty list from the B.C. government. Well, that continues. And we do have this new Housing Supply Act talking about things like densification and uh, kind of some stick and carrot approaches for municipalities to pay attention to, especially in some areas, more cities being added to that list in the last few days. We're talking with Tom Davidoff, director of UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Tom, is this a North American thing where people still expect that they can have a single detached home if they are successful? Is that how we rate success in this country and uh, perhaps in the United States? I think uh, for people who grew up, you know, in, in some generations, certainly, you know, I mean, I watched how many sitcoms growing up where you sat on the couch in the living room of your detached house in view of the front door. Uh, but I, I think uh, younger people just don't have that expectation. And of course, people who live, uh, I grew up in New York City, uh, there's no expectation of a single detached house. Lots and lots of uh, immigrants live in Canada. And, uh, you know, so so non-North American background, probably generally not, not the standard. You know, we had this idea of, you know, drive to work from a single detached house. And, you know, it, it worked nicely for a while, but, it, you know, environmentally not sustainable as the city grows. It's not sustainable affordability. It doesn't really work when you get to a decent size. So, of course, uh, planning and um, objectives have to change in that way. They do have to change. And we go back to the 1950s when we started to see freeways and suburbs and, you know, malls, regional malls and kind of like a, Dad, typically, would be uh, the one working, single family uh, or a single uh, income home, and have a nice house and drive into the city. That notion still, I would argue, exists in some people's minds. It's hard to get rid of it, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so that's why we need this provincial intervention. I mean, districts of North Vancouver and West Vancouver are beautiful places. And, you know, they've got uh, parks. It's a very high quality of life. And there's nothing wrong with residents wanting to to preserve that other than, you know, it, 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 it's not a, going forward. It's not a sensible use of extremely valuable land. But the whole reason you need to have the province uh, come in and essentially force municipalities like that to uh, add more density is 
the incumbent residents uh, have a preference that things stay the way they are. And it's not a crazy preference. It doesn't make people bad uh, to want to keep things the way they are. But politics being what it is, you're not going to get the change uh, that's needed uh, unless a more senior level of government imposes it. In all this talk, are we losing kind of sight on where the jobs are? We still have these massive commutes. I I see it almost every day. Uh, The workforce is still in your central business district, uh, Vancouver, and people live in the burbs. Uh, They're not necessarily going to jobs in the burbs. What do we do about that? Are we doing anything about that? Well, uh, we did by having wet markets and not wearing masks. We got COVID to expand. And uh, look what that did. That, um, you know, has created a a work-from-home phenomenon, which which might be a very good thing. You know, I mean, people sitting and commuting, be it on transit or cars for, you know, an hour and a half or so uh, each day, that's not a great use of anything. It's not great environmentally. And to the extent people can zoom in and be equally productive, I suppose that's a good thing. And and that does allow uh, more expansion of where people can live. But hopefully, I think a lot of us like uh, urban centers uh, and work is maybe more productive when it's collaborative and in person. And so if we're going to continue to work in in urban cores, uh, yeah, we have to uh, have have homes that are are closer to work. I will say, however, that in terms of warehousing needs, I'll just go back to prices. Prices are a really good signal for warehousing is needed, right? People tell you where they want houses and they tell you by saying we'll give the seller a big reward if we can buy Uh, in a place that prices are high. So all the province really needs to do is identify where are prices high and yet density low, and that's obviously the low-hanging fruit in terms of change. Well, prices are high because there are a certain amount of people that can obviously afford to pay that price. But there are others that can't pay that price, still want to have families. Mm -hmm. If this doesn't work, are we going to see more people moving out of B.C.? Because it's not just a Vancouver thing. This is happening in your Kamloops, Kelowna, Victoria. It's all over the province. Are we going to see a a greater exodus of uh, people that uh, decide to go elsewhere in the country? Yeah, we'll see churn, right? Basically, the people who live in British Columbia and greater Vancouver in particular are going to be the people with the greatest willingness to pay, right? You line up everybody in terms of how much they're willing to to pay to live in Vancouver instead of somewhere else. And however many homes there are, if there's, you know, two million homes, it's the two million people most willing to pay uh, to live in greater Vancouver. And as uh, the economy changes, as immigration expands, uh, those 200,000 people are going to get richer, two million people are going to get richer and richer. So the only way to lower prices is to expand the number of people, march down that demand curve and uh, let more people in. If we build more homes, we're letting in people with lower and lower willingness to pay, and that's what sets the price. So, you know, we're playground for the rich if we don't grow. What do you think is going to happen, honestly? Are we going to continue to be then that playground for the rich, or are you optimistic that we have enough will to uh, change things? Changing land use would make a real difference. You know, not forever. It's not going to reverse the tide permanently. But letting people live in townhomes and apartments rather than requiring that people live in single family homes really could expand housing choice. 
you know, Auckland, New Zealand has expanded housing choice. And, you know, it's hard to look at data uh, from one experiment, but it seems like they've built quite a bit more in terms of that so-called missing middle housing and rents seem to have fallen relative to other markets in New Zealand. So there's some evidence that allowing this infill housing that the province is going to encourage municipalities to allow and even more density uh, on on our arterials and and more importantly, near transportation you know, allowing the market to respond with density, I think, can make an improvement. However, I'm not optimistic that things will get much better. Vancouver is not going to be an affordable place. It's just a question of how bad things get over time. And this is an important intervention to stem things. You know, I was a bit misquoted in an article. You know, some people have been making a bit of hay out of this, saying, you know, I think what this does is make things worse more slowly. But, you know, Stopping is something terrible, right? Like we're aiding Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's not getting better. It's getting worse. True enough. Tom Davidoff, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Director of UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Thanks for spending this portion of your Monday morning with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Is this the blow to the white supremacist movement that many have been looking for? The massive sentence to the leader of the Oath Keepers? You might recall that Stuart Rhodes, the former Army paratrooper and Yale-educated lawyer who founded the Oath Keepers, yeah, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy. Of course, this related to his role in the 2021 U.S. Capitol attack. Here's what his lawyer, Philip Linder, had to say about the sentence itself. I can't answer that. I mean, we have differences of opinion on some of the evidence. I, of course, I wanted less. The prosecutors wanted more. But based on Judge Mehta's uh, belief of what the facts show and his recitation of that yesterday and today, uh, I believe that was lower than what I thought Mehta would do. It was lower than you thought? Today. Yeah. I, yeah. After today, I thought it would be higher. It's the biggest sentence that's been handed down so far. Uh, the next one is 14 years. It's the only sentence that's been handed down for seditious conspiracy in 30 years, I think. And so I think this speaks volumes to what other defendants could be looking at if they pled to or get convicted of seditious conspiracy. Yeah, so 18 years for seditious conspiracy, by far the longest sentence for any of the 1,000-plus charged in connection with what happened back on January 6 in 2021. Well, we'll bring in Brad Galloway. Brad is the coordinator at the Center for Hate Bias and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. He also works with the Organization for the Prevention of Violence and Life After Hate. His work is informed by experiences in the right-wing extremist movement. Yeah, that's where he spent 13 years of his life. Brad, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me So when you hear about a sentence like this, is this going to be making a martyr of what what we saw, or is it going to be really the thing, the sentence for student roads uh, or Stuart Rhodes, the thing that uh, makes people think twice when they get involved in far-right groups? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's um, obviously for an individual to be uh, handed a sentence of of that length, it's going to be hard for them to... To, uh, to take that, but I think this also will foment hostility from, from the far right. It will create, like you said, a little bit of a um, martyrdom for, uh, for that, those movements. Um, I think uh, 
you know, it will be used as as a dividing point too, uh, and just to just to create more uh, division between an already, uh, you know, uh, very fragmented uh, political uh, situation in, in the United States. Okay, Brad. Now, for 13 years, uh, this was a big part of your life. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, these these movements uh, have have an attraction base to it that they, uh, you know, people who are going through vulnerable times in their lives, people uh, who are disconnected and are just looking for belonging, uh, as such in my story. Um, and, and then there are, are those uh, folks who are ideologically motivated and, and who are, um, you know, very, very much following these types of uh, beliefs and in, in these uh, different groups that they, they join, they believe in them. Uh, but I, I do believe that uh, a lot of, if not most, leave these groups. So uh, giving that uh, those messages of hope, as in my story, I, I was involved with it, but I also uh, left uh, and it can and it uh, and it will be uh, nowadays. There's a um, you know uh, a great set of resources that people have, uh, i.e., Life After Hate and uh, Organization for Engines Evolved program. Um, you know we we are set out uh, by mentorship and and by mental health professionals that can uh, help help folks leave these movements as well. So just as much as you can get in them, you, there is there are ways out um, and. You know, in in a situation with Rhodes, uh, potentially maybe this this prison sentence will will help him see uh, that there's a there's a, a better way to life than than following along with the uh, hate movements and hate groups and, and different types of uh, extremist uh, groups. So yeah, is it touches with the justice system that really make the difference? What was it for you that uh, was the catalyst in leaving uh, right wing extremism? Well, I mean, I think part of it for me was. It was family. It was it was a notion of of trying to move on to uh, see see life in in a new light um, and having children and and not wanting to teach them hate and 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 fear and violence and and all of that type of thing. Um, and I uh, yeah, I mean, I think the criminal justice system had uh, plays a role, can play a positive role uh, when. Uh, when utilized in the right manner, I mean, I think in in my case it it definitely did. There there was some interactions that I had with with uh, law enforcement and and that throughout my time that that were helpful. That made me see that uh, continuing these behaviors and, and involvement in these groups can would just lead to more more problems um, and obviously uh, harms in society and, and also in my own personal life. So it it. it uh, you know, when when approached uh, in in a certain way, I think I think the the criminal justice system and its elements and elements of it can be can be helpful. When we see what happened back on January sixth that day, uh, is that an American thing where you have this uh, lack of trust of government, or is it something that we in Canada have to be aware of too? I mean, I think um, we've seen the, the polarization that, that happened over. Let, let's just use the the COVID nineteen pandemic as a as an example here. Um, you know, the the distrust in government, the the you know anti Trudeau sentiments that we've seen. I, I don't think in my lifetime I've ever seen uh, so much uh, you know polarization on on either side of uh, for or against our, our prime minister um, and and just the 
the continued protests and 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 that even after uh, the the pandemic has been uh, assessed that it's over, like where you know we just haven't seen things like this and 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 some of the underlying ideologies and and thought processes that are um, you know we saw with the, uh, the the trucker convoy things like that um, these things continue to be uh, dividing points in our in our society up here. Well, I'd hate to see a January 6th-esque thing, but uh, it's definitely been mentioned within far-right um, groups up here that they would like to see something similar or to do something similar uh, here in Canada. But I, I just think we also approach things much differently in Canada. Uh, so I, I'm, uh, I'm of a hope that something like that would never happen in Canada, but I, I know that the far right up here would love to see something like that. However, um, if we can if we can continue to uh, use our use our resources here to to push this uh, away and, and and try to help people uh, out of these groups before they they make some some of these choices to get involved in in something as serious as, as January six. Okay, we're we talking can... with Brad Galloway, coordinator at the Center for Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. Now, Brad, it is possible to hate uh, a prime minister and be very concerned and even want to protest against him and not be a right-wing extremist. Where do you find the difference and uh, what is it that uh, makes some people worry that uh, it can go too far? Do we know the difference? Do we know where the line is drawn? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we should. Um, and, and I think you're right. There is definitely, uh, um, you know, we have, we have the right in Canada to protest and, and to, yeah, not, not like the current leadership in, in, a, in the country that, and that's all well and good, but it's how these, uh, right-wing extremist groups use these narratives to, to pad what they're looking for. Right. Which is, a um, I think, uh, it's a gathering point for them where they see a recruitment, uh, space for them to move in and try to, uh, you know, one of the biggest things is for these groups is to push the extreme into the mainstream, which a lot of these groups have been uh, inadvertently given, you know, public, uh, you know, uh, some, some, some public eye here, which we don't, we, we want to reduce that as much as we can um, so that the wrong people aren't, I mean, uh, getting, getting the limelight at times. Brad, of course, a lot of your experience is with right-wing extremism, but do you think the same thing can happen with left and left-wing extremism? I just, I, I think there's, there's, uh, you know, we don't want to equate those two. Um, I'm not, it, it, recently, I don't think, I think we've seen what we, what we can say is a rise in right-wing extremist activity. I haven't, uh, we haven't seen notable uh, similar um, le- left wing extremism, if you will, uh, as of recent, um, I think, I think it's, um, you know, we, we don't want to be, uh, saying something's uh, as prominent if it's not, if it's just not there as much. Um, I think a lot of the academics out there that are working on this space would, would concur with that, you know, the different attacks that have happened over the last decade or so have been, uh, more more so associated with the far right than than uh, any other uh, political ideology at this point. So, um, but I also don't uh, I I you know I think that we are 
dealing with a very specific group of uh, of people, and and we want, don't want to be equating everything as extremism, as you were saying. With uh, you know, there's certain things we, we can okay. uh, we can do and protest, right? So. What is the solution to this to make sure that uh, right-wing extremism in your mind is not going to take over and put us in our country into a dangerous situation, uh, something similar to what we saw at the U.S. Capitol? I mean, I think uh, what we're calling ideologically motivated violent extremism here in Canada, I think we just need to keep working uh, in in this space to identify um, seed out and do more research on uh, and evaluate uh, what the problems are and where where these things are coming from and where we can make uh, uh, proper interventions from a law enforcement perspective or from a uh, uh, community-based, uh, you know, response as well uh, as the programs that, that I've been working with. We have been working very hard on trying to figure out what those responses might look like. Um, and we need to continue to, to build these programs and networks of, of, uh, of uh, multidisciplinary teams that, that work on this space to, to continue the, the valuable work that we, we have been doing uh, and, and uh, to, to reduce the amount of, of activity and, and violence that's been going sure. on uh, across Canada. Brad, thanks so much for sharing with us as we continue to take a look at things like uh, this sentence and where we're going with uh, some of the extremis- extremism that you've been talking about. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, concerns continue that the province fails to adequately invest in an effective system for people who experience mental health issues mental illness. Instead, we are pushing full steam ahead, one of the few jurisdictions in the world that has decriminalized some small amounts of hard drugs and fast-tracked a publicly funded supply. Really, it's no wonder that the mayors and many communities around the province are a little bit concerned with BC's approach and the ramifications at the local level when you see it in area parks, on area streets. Is it the right approach? Are we doing the right thing? What are the challenges? Well, Dr. Julian Summers is a distinguished professor of health sciences at SFU. He joins us this morning. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Got to ask that obvious question. Is our provincial government making things a lot, a lot more difficult for mayors and councils around the city or around the city, cities around the province? Short answer, yes. Um, and there's there's evidence in the public domain that I think many mayors and councillors um, would be uh, 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 wise enough to avoid referencing. But uh, if we look back at um, the recent some of the recent events in Vancouver, um, the uh, the former mayor, um, uh, was uh, put in an incredibly difficult position, similar to current mayors, where he said, and this is an open council, so what I mean by on the record, saying that, look, I mean, we're facing this incredibly unpopular rezoning application at 7th and Arbutus. Uh, 80% of the people speaking were strongly opposed. And he said, well, look, but we've got to vote for it because the, the, the premier has said, if we don't take the money for this, he's going to take it off the table. So they were backed into this horrible predicament they voted for it. Next thing you know, voters voted them out. And the mayors right now are facing a, a similar kind of a, a, a challenge, a real bind. 
Um, one thing I can tell all listeners is that building more housing, although intuitively sensible, is not what is going to best help people who are currently homeless, struggling with mental illnesses, because what we need to do is basically look at a, a kind of a musical chairs environment. What they need is not simply a place to live. What they need is membership in established communities, not communities where everyone else has recently exited homelessness and is struggling currently with mental illness, but communities where there's diversity and where they have an opportunity to feel that they have an opportunity at integration. And, and this is evidence from randomized controlled trials conducted in Vancouver and in other Canadian cities. So the quality of this evidence is extremely high. And it's not the first time I've heard this uh, talk about a link membership, as you say, in communities. Tell me a little bit more about what that would look like and what we need to do here. Well, it would mean essentially that the province would finally make good on the commitment that was made to British Columbians in the era of deinstitutionalization. And yes, I'm referring to the 1970s and 80s when it was already known that housing people altogether long-term in institutions was, was not what was best for them. And instead, what we should do is be securing units scattered throughout our communities and all around the province. This is not a solution in urban areas exclusively. This, is a, a, this needs to be a solution that supports people to retain their membership in the communities where they've been in, in, enjoying their journeys, their life journeys, up to the point where mental illness has essentially uh, overtaken some of their needs. And we, we knew back then, this is 50 years ago, that the evidence was in and the province made a commitment. Some, some of your listeners will remember if they're of a similar vintage to me. Closer to home was the commitment. That was the slogan. We need to finally get around to making good on that promise. Secure units as places become available. And instead of paying for hospital beds in, in large institutions, which, by the way, is more expensive than what I'm proposing, the province needs to take custody of, of, with, with private landlords of units that are dispersed throughout our communities that are anticipating that people in those communities are going to need assistance and support. They're going to need a place to live that allows them to stay where they are and not undergo what we see, which is this migration to places like the downtown east side, now to places like Nanaimo and many other BC communities where people are pushed from their places of origin looking for help that they don't get. But here is my question, and it comes down to the why. Why do we need to have this link between communities uh, when we see that it's almost every community in the province has examples of people that are not housed and are dealing with mental illness? So I, I just I, I'm having a little bit of difficulty trying to figure out uh, how we really need it. What happens when we don't have it? Uh, the, the, the it being being places for them to live in their communities? That's right. Uh, when we don't have those links, people associating with their own communities and finding those, uh, those links, those uh, belongings, what happens when we don't have it? What's the alternative? What are we dealing with right now because of a lack of link? Wow. Um, well, we're dealing with uh, an, an, an ever-worsening crisis that the current proposal would make worse by essentially threatening mayors to get on with rezoning so that they can concentrate people who are, who are currently homeless in buildings together where the evidence shows they're not going to improve nearly as much as they would if we did what I suggested earlier. Um, other evidence, I mean, keep in mind also that there's no way to have an ongoing drug mortality crisis unless you are continuing to replace people who are at similar risk 
at at least the same rate. So the death crisis is the tip of a proverbial iceberg. Below the, below the water surface that's less visible is that we're locking up in our, in our custody centers and involuntarily hospitalizing increasing numbers of people for mental illness, including substance use. And the, and the people who were, being, who were, being, um, uh, who were, who were uh, uh, putting into custody are racking up more and more prior convictions each year. We're essentially recycling people through these settings and putting them at risk of, of mortality. Um, there, there's there's an incredible you know amount amount of evidence the province is is completely disregarding. It does not want to talk about the fact that we have a um, a, a, a set of policies that is creating demand for addiction, and that's where all of the opportunities for change are. Instead, they are perpetually framing this as a as a toxic drug crisis, a supply crisis, as though changing the supply was somehow going to address these underlying factors that are creating demand. And until we see, hear from our politicians that they recognize that we are creating demand for addiction and they have some meaningful actions that are targeting those demands and reducing them, we are unfortunately going to be stuck with an ongoing drug mortality crisis. Everything you said is not new. Uh, this has been said by experts before. So what is the problem? Do you think it is the provincial government coming out with uh, something that is maybe more popular politically but uh, neglects reality at the local level. What's what's going on here? Um, well, I mean, it's it, it looks it looks to me. You're right. This has been proposed uh, to to this very government, this NDP government, even even well before the most recent budget surplus that 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 surplus of a generation, uh, well before even the money went out the door that we read of in the BC housing audits. They had heard of these alternatives, and rather than embracing a different direction, they more than doubled down. They quadrupled down on spending on the status quo. To me, it looks as though there was an overriding commitment to the status quo, uh, suggesting personal affiliations and relationships that were too costly to change, and perhaps uh, along with that, um, an unwillingness to take the bull by the horns and exercise leadership, exercise. It's, it's not easy to make changes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make changes. I'm a little, little tiny disruptor here over in my little waiting pool, and it's hard for me. Uh, so I can only imagine the pressures that, it would, that would be experienced by someone at, at the premier level or the minister level. But unfortunately, they must make these changes, and so far they have not shown the courage to do so. Okay, let's talk about that courage and let's break it down into immediate steps that can happen. We're talking, by the way, with Dr. Julian Summers, uh, Distinguished Prof of Health Sciences at SFU. And doctor, uh, if we were to take a look at some steps that could or should be taken in the form of leadership, as you put it, what would those steps be? What can the province do now that's on the right track to solving these issues? Start working immediately with landlords and employers in the private sector in every community. Secure units for people and start negotiating with employers about return to work, about supported employment. This is also not a new thing I'm talking about. This is this, both of the things I'm referring to go back to the era of deinstitutionalization and we're part of what is necessary. You can't simply put somebody in a place with a PlayStation and a consumption site and say, there, we've done our duty. That's not even close. 
So you need to go around and do those things. You need to start working with the not-for-profit sector. This is neither a police problem nor a medical problem. This is largely something that rests on the efforts of people in our not-for-profit sector, but they are completely disaggregated. There are no standards. There are no standards for service delivery or for compensation, for continuing professional development, and for measuring outcomes. So we need to, we need to start with, with, with those things, implement standards, engage some of the people who are currently alienated from this whole process, uh, including psychologists and, and others who, who can play a role, uh, a limited role, um, and provide expertise. And we need to support people in, 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 the, in the vernacular, people with lived experience, peers, people who've been there, and not as a, as a token, as somebody who gets paid some sort of a, 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 you know, a token sum to, to come in and be, be a visible part of the solution, as a meaningful part of the solution. Again, with standards, with training, and, and all these things exist. I mean, the, the, the means to provide training, the means to implement standards, um, the benchmarks that we should be uh, aiming for in terms of once someone leaves homelessness and enters supported housing, we know from, from these randomized trials that we should be seeing 45% reductions in medical emergencies and 70 plus percent reductions in crime in the first year. We should be measuring those things. And if we don't see those results, we know we, need to, we have some opportunities for improvement. All those things are possible and were spelled out to this provincial government. And that's part of what they took a hard pass on when they were uh, in the process of doubling down on, on the spending for ATIRA and other SROs. Julian Summers, you've given it a lot of thought and you've come out with some things that are immediate steps. Thanks for sharing your time with us this morning. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike. As we talk about pride this month and take a look at some of the ways to combat all the hate that still exists, the importance of drag queen shows is something that could be considered, in, especially when it comes to creating a safe space for people from the LGBTQ plus community. Connie Smudge, also known as Chris Bolton, joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Tell me a little bit more about the importance of drag queen shows and what we really need to know. Absolutely, Bruce. Thanks so much for having uh, me. I would say us, but me. I don't want to get too plural here. Um, I should probably give you my very first happy pride, everybody. (laughs) Absolutely. Happy pride. We're just kicking off. And just before we get into all that, I just wanted to say how cool it is, what this thread is that you've created. Because between, I've been listening, and between TC and Brad and myself, um, I think it was TC who touched on it, maybe it was Brad, about having the superpowers. And that comes from the challenges we've, we've endured during our lives. And sometimes they're really pooey and we wish that they didn't happen. But they really do make us who we are. And a lot of my superpowers come from those places of not belonging and uh, feeling like I was wrong. And, um, you know, so I just want to sort of uh, give a little kudos to CKNW and shedding a light on all of our um, challenges and how we can overcome them. So, yeah, there, there is a lot of pushback right now, isn't there? Well, there is. But there is also, I look at uh, some of the big words that I love when we talk about things like pride. And one of them is, of course, inclusion. But it's also a sense of belonging and affirmation. What do those things mean to you? 
Well, they mean everything to me because you know affirmation also comes with comes with authenticity, and you know I think a lot of the kids these days you were talking about younger generations and having, you know, finding their tribe. Well, it was really easy in in my day. I'm a child of the '70s and '80s. That's how old I am. And uh, but we felt we were able. I think it was a lot easier for us to find out the people that we belonged with that sort of had the same, you know, even down to the same fashion back in the '80s and um, the music we listened to and all that that sort of contact that we had and the community building that we had. And then, you know, fast forward to sort of the early 90s when I came out of the closet, we didn't have all of the, you know, grinder and, you know, apps on your phone and we didn't even have cell phones. So we would sort of meet at the clubs and we would sort of find our tribes that way as well. So, you know, um, I sort of get, get myself on a tangent here, but I really believe that it's sort of, you know, from all those negative challenges, we sort of find our, find our way. Connie Smudge, a.k.a. Chris Bolton, uh, co-founder of North Shore Pride Alliance and extraordinary drag queen. You know, I could go on and ask you so many questions, and I wish I had more time. I should have uh, planned that out a little bit better. But if people want to find out more information, is there a website they can go to to connect? You betcha. Well, Vancouver Pride is always all over everything, and the route has changed a little bit this time. It starts at the corner of Davie and Denman um, and goes right down to um, the Concord Community Park. But I actually am involved with the North Shore Pride Alliance, and all that week, up until Friday, August 4th, which where we sort of culminate our deliciousness at the shipyards. We have a big, huge shipyards. There's, like, drag, and there's lots of live music, and it's totally fun, and it's from about 5 until about 10. And uh, everything else you can check out. Just look out for North Shore Pride Alliance and Vancouver Pride and just be who you are. Happy Remember Pride. That Pride is 365. Absolutely. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Connie Smudge, a.k.a. Chris Bolton.